It's Thursday, August 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. An update from my old beat. My old beats. Did you know I once ran a gambling magazine called Jack, Jack, Ace, Queen, King? I had the first ever public radio podcast of any kind. And its name was On Gambling with Mike Pesca. And I, of course, covered sports for seven or eight years for my over a decade tenure at NPR. Well, ESPN will license the letters ESPN to Penn Gaming, a casino company, for $150 million annually for a decade. So it's a $1.5 billion deal, plus $500 million in stock warrants. Therefore, ESPN bets will be a casino, will be a TV network with an arm that is a casino. Now, the questions being asked are of the how will this change what we expect from the once so-called worldwide leader in sports. And it's still, I think, the worldwide leader, but maybe not by as much as it used to be. How will this change things? And my general rule of thumb is that often when something earth-shaking like this occurs, the question isn't how will this change things going forward, it's what does this tell us about where we already are? How has ESPN already changed? So in terms of journalism and in terms of content, ESPN has embraced and already had deals with Caesars and DraftKings. And if you watch ESPN, this would not be a surprise to you. The DraftKings, where to take your fantasy football running back scroll was omnipresent on the screen. The odds for games were not only not hard to find, they were being pushed at you on the website or on television. I do not necessarily think this is wrong. A small percentage of people who gamble will become addicted gamblers. There is an argument that it is better to legalize this vice as with all vices so that illegal actors don't have monopolies over it. And it doesn't even matter if the argument is right or if the argument is wrong because all of the sports leagues have become business partners with casinos and with sports books. So it is quite odd to do a little bit of hand-wringing and wonder what ESPN, an entity that covers the sports leagues, will do to become purer or at least less gambling-centric than the sports leagues themselves. How will this affect content? I would say not much, just even more of what we've seen, which is what the public seemingly wants, which is coverage that includes the lines, the spreads, some information that could affect the lines and the spreads. How about journalism? Well, ESPN's journalism, and they're a fine journalistic organization, but it has greatly been affected by the fact that they are partners with the NBA, the NFL, all the big sports entities. And this isn't to say when a big story falls in its lap or when there is coverage that is required, ESPN won't do good, fine coverage. It's not as if they are going to ignore the next Ray Rice or other uh, tape of a professional athlete abusing someone in an elevator. They're not going to bury that possibly explosive fact. But what they aren't going to do and what they haven't done for a while is define their mission as possibly tangling with their business partners if they don't have to. So I'll give you an example. The Washington Post, it was uh, last year, found that there was a photo of Jerry Jones from 1957, the owners of the Dallas Cowboys, a photo of him taken at his high school as his high school 
attempted to integrate. And there was Jerry Jones standing at North Little Rock High School with a look of surprise, glee, something other than disquiet and upset at what appeared to be thuggish white kids confronting black kids trying to integrate the school. The Washington Post did a couple of stories on it. Uh, One of the stories argued that, well, I'll read the headline, A 1957 photo of Jerry Jones reminds us how recent America's past is. So the Washington Post framing, I'll read you the headline from their series called Blackout. Jerry Jones helped transform the NFL except when it came to race. Decades after standing on the front lines of one of Little Rock's darkest segregation clashes, the Dallas Cowboys owner has led the league towards new revenue models but is yet to hire a black coach. Written by David Marinus and Sally Jenkins, a once double guest and future guest of The Gist, Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus, esteemed sports columnist Sally Jenkins, they pointed an accusatory finger at Jerry Jones. ESPN would never have done this. Now, I'm not citing the type of story where you could say, and that is to the shame of ESPN, what a blockbuster series, what a piece of revelatory investigative journalism. It was more uh, a surfaced fact, a framing, making an extremely powerful figure in the NFL uncomfortable based on a premise that is disputable. I think it's fine and good that the Washington Post pursued that story. I think journalists have to have latitude. And I am telling you that ESPN would never have gone in to pursue that story in the way that the Washington Post did. There is no reason for ESPN to unnecessarily upset one of the most powerful men who is behind the most powerful business partner they have. The casinos do not become more powerful business partners than the leagues, and that is where we are with ESPN. You can bet on it. On the show today... Freedom isn't free, especially when it comes to freeing five Iranian-Americans detained in Tehran. But first, Brad Thor is the best-selling author of dozens of novels about spies, special forces, characters engaged in clandestine operations, people for whom the phrase, the kill shot, is used often. We will discuss how Thor has created his brand of storytelling, what he calls faction. His 23rd book is out now. Brad Thor up next. here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do 
via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Brad Thor is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 23 thrillers. They all have cool and intriguing names like Near Dark Backlash, Spy Master. The new one is Deadfall. I've known of Brad Thor for years. I think he is a cool and intriguing name. I think it would be bad if Brad Thor got into, say, the aroma candle business. That wouldn't go. But for his genre of book, the thriller, Brad Thor is a fantastic name. I want to talk craft and I want to talk the politics of the new book, Deadfall. Brad, welcome to The Gist. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Brad, it seems to me that a reason that people love thrillers, there are a few elements, but they are drawn to things like international intrigue, missile systems, and the operations of programs that are clandestine. And so the more that you can explain to them, either through fact or fiction, the more thrilling it is. So my question is, you I know you do a lot of research, and you want to convey as accurately as possible, say, how a missile system works, or what are the procedures for some sort of spy craft. But how much, is there a rule of thumb about how much leeway you give yourself to fictionalize questions like that, how the actual programs work? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. My dad swore that Tom Clancy got paid not by the book, but by the word, okay? You could have 15 pages on how a missile system works. Elmore Leonard was famous for teaching young writers two things. Never start with the weather. It was a dark and stormy night. And number two, leave out the parts that people skip. Guess what I skipped yeah. in all the Clancy books? All that crap about 15 pages worth of how a missile works. All that I care about is that there's a couple of special operations guys up on a hill with a laser that can't be seen by the human eye that paints the side of the house. That's what the missile tracks and it hits that house because it's being lased. That's the target. That's all I want to know. I call what I do, Mike, uh, faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. I pride myself on, like one of the, the greatest introductions I get, I'm doing a media tour for Deadfall now, is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the reason I didn't get any sleep last night is because of our next guest, Brad Thor. I want you to keep turning those pages. I don't want to give you a chance to put the book down. So I, I got to tell you, I write the kind of books I would like to read, Mike. So I, I don't want to know about the gyroscope and what kind of fuel goes in the missile. I think it's cool that the missile can travel this fast and this far, and it hits where the guys have put the laser on it. That's all I need. So I try to make it engaging. I want you to learn a little bit so that you close the book going, wow, I never knew about that. But people say they love to read my thrillers with their laptop open because they see stuff and yeah. they can't believe that's a real fact and they go and Google it. That's awesome. But you can go too far. Well, I want to ask you, okay, so let me give you an example. Uh, one of your main characters is on a train. The train is heading into Ukraine. Boom, they kind of come under fire. This guy's an experienced uh, CIA operative, though he'll deny that. And he talks about where the fire can be coming from. And if it's suppressing fire, which is a concept I understand, if they're trying to keep the people in the train or if they're shooting them, if the point is to get them out of the train and to pick them off one by one. He talks about how there are probably he's looking for snipers on each 
each side. So this is all, to me, something that a special operations person would be trained with. It's all factual. Or, on the other hand, you could add some stuff to that. It might not be true. And so on something like that, where does the reality of what special ops guys who you've talked to, where does that end and where does the fiction or where do you allow yourself uh, the fiction? That's a, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I want to get it right because I have non-military people read the books and then I've got actual military people and people in the intelligence community, law enforcement people. So if I'm describing a scenario like that, it's like Ronan, right? Draw it again. Draw it again. Two guys straight across from each other, shoot each other, cut each other to ribbons. I just ambushed you with a cup of coffee. So I want to have that stuff correct without going over the top with it. And it also is, I'm trying to give you, as my guy is diving for cover and trying to figure out how he's going to exit the train because it's under fire, it's been hit with mortar rounds. I want to show you a little bit of his thought process so you can see Oh my God, he doesn't just bomb out the back door. He's got to actually like in milliseconds run this through his head and say, if this was me trying to pick off people, where, how would I do it sort of a thing? So it gives you an insight into his experience. Uh, again, I'm not, I, I, there's a guy at the CIA that like uh, took a couple swings at me uh, a few books back because uh, he said in real life, between the source and the intelligence officer, there would have been seven cutouts. Seven different people you'd have to go right. through. And I'm like, nobody's right. going to sit and read a book where my guy has to have seven meetings before he gets to the intelligence source. So that really is the art of creative writing, is knowing what to leave out. Right. Can I just tell you, so uh, I interviewed James Comey, who wrote a, a mystery, and it seemed like his, it wasn't that bad, but I'm sure you would read it and say, here's your problem. You were so faithful to the actual process of how you get a subpoena that, you know, he would include the seventh and maybe an eighth or ninth <laughs> cutout just to be sure that we're proper and doing right. things by the book. But the book that we're doing things by is not the book the public wants to read. Bingo. It's entertainment, right? So, uh, right. I have to I have to keep you turning those pages. That's my job is to give you the best white knuckle thrill ride I'm capable of. That's what I'm in the business of. So over two decades of doing this, I've kind of developed the cadence. I keep track as I'm writing. I have a little uh, a little log, if you will, that I do for each, when I complete each chapter. I color code it so I know how long it's been since you've seen the bad guys, how long it's been since we've bounced back to my protagonist. Meanwhile, what's Smart. happening on the ranch back in Northern Virginia or D.C. So that I can – it's not a formula per se, but it lets me, while I'm in the thick of writing the book, know kind of where I'm at in the story. So I, it, it's yeah. just kind of an instinct thing, if you will, of knowing what to go to next and how long to stay with it. Well, it's not an instinct or it's an instinct uh, like a great defensive lineman has the instinct, but the instinct is born of training for it and knowing every scenario beforehand. Instinct is the uh, residue of preparation, right? I guess, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And also you're being the proxy for the reader. If you leave one of your characters without having checked in for 60 pages, you're going to know they're going to say, wait, who is that person right. again? Or I'm now not invested in this storyline? Yeah, no. So that's usually important. And I've got a fabulous editor. So I'm going to hear from my editor and I'm going to have to go back and fix that. So to, I, I'm not a guy that leaves placeholders or anything like that. I, I 
I'm not an outliner, so I'm what they call a pantser. So I'm organic. This st- I don't dictate what the story is going to be. The story tells me what it's going to be. And I want to have the same experience writing it that you do reading it. I want my heart mm-hmm. to pound and my palms to sweat. And I paint my characters into corners all the time, not knowing what's going to happen. And that can be tough when I get to work the next day because I, I, I'm like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. In fact, my wife, when I come home at the end of the day, knows if it's a red wine night or a bourbon night just by the expression on my face. And she always says, don't worry, you're going to figure your way out of this in the morning. And normally my rule of thumb is uh, if I'm if I've got my character facing something, I don't know how to handle the situation. I get my first four ideas and I throw them out because if I can think mm-hmm. of four immediate things they might do in that situation, so can the reader. So Robert Frost yeah. said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. And I, I stick to that maxim. Where do you get your ideas, the best ideas from how things actually work? Are they, are it, is it from talking to people in those fields or just reading Jane's Defense Weekly or the Washington Post? So it's all that. So I'm a voracious consumer of news. And so it's, yeah, it's Jane's, it's uh, the war zone at the drive, it's Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the Atlantic, uh, foreign policy. I'm all over the place. I'm constantly pulling it in, looking for interesting storylines. And, you know, people talk about the glass being half full, half empty. I want to put the glass on a glass coffee table and crawl underneath it and look at it from the bottom going straight up. It's just, I've got this weird mind that says like my third book, State of the Union, uh, the concept was what if the Cold War didn't end the way we thought it ended? What if the Russians had just rolled over and played dead knowing we'd leave them alone and they get all this international aid money they could pour into weapons projects and things like this. So I, I like to have fun with stuff that's in the news, but I used to think growing up, I'd always wanted to be a writer as a kid. And I thought when I started, when I sat down to write my first book, when I got right out of college, I thought this is the most lonely, uh, the loneliest, most solitary profession in the world. And I stopped and I really stopped because I was afraid. What if I write a book and it sucks? What if I can't get it published? Why risk the embarrassment? I just won't do it. And I put it off for years, uh, but it is not a solitary, lonely. Uh, the writing of the book, I have to do by myself, but I could not do what I do without the generous help of others. So whether that be active or retired military people, law enforcement, intelligence folks, I'm constantly texting, emailing, on the phone, uh, FaceTiming with people saying, what about this? What about that? What keeps you up at night? I get a lot of good stuff asking yeah. that. Uh, so it, and then I bet as your books become more popular and your readers are spread throughout the uh, r- branches of government and power and probably a guy like Elliot Cohn is a fan of yours and then he winds up in a book, you're getting more and more tips. Hey, Brad, have you ever heard of this? Hey, Brad, did you know that the Ukrainians actually had a bounty program if pilots and helicopters from Russia defected, which I didn't know. And then I read it in your book and I said, that's got to be true. It is, right? It is. Yeah. And yeah. so is Operation Pinup that I wrote about in the book as well. So yeah, those were two legit. I, and so, I, you know, Mark Twain said the difference between fiction and reality is people expect fiction to make sense. Uh, and so I love to grab stuff out of reality and put it in. So some of those really cool spy operations that are in Deadfall actually were done uh, in the war over in Ukraine. It's just mind-boggling. Operation so Pinup is a PSYOPs operation which used the uh, wives of high-ranking Russian officials in boudoir photos against them. Fantastic. <laughs> Love it. One other question that I said, this has got to be true. I remember reading about the Chinese hacks of U.S. personnel, mm-hmm. and I you know, just vaguely filed that away of, that's not good, but I wasn't sure how. You pointed out how exactly it was not good, which was what? 
So uh, the Chinese didn't just hack the uh, the SF-86s, which are the forms that you fill out for your top secret clearance. They went and there was an IRS hack. There were several big insurance company hacks. So James Bond's cover was universal exports, right? So if mm-hmm. everybody on SEAL Team 6 lists universal exports as their employer for their insurance plan, the Chinese can start reverse engineering and figuring out who's where, who's connected, all of this stuff. And they share a lot of intelligence with the Russians in particular. So in deadfall, because we are not committing American troops to the battlefield, I had to explain as a thriller writer why it's just my protagonist going over to Ukraine. And deadfall's about him looking for a missing American uh, aid worker. She's caught behind enemy lines, don't know if she's dead or alive. Uh, so Harvef has got to go get her. And it, whoever took her, whoever harmed her, he's got to make them pay big time. But the U.S. can't send any of his teammates with him because of the fact that Russia could basically reverse engineer all these guys work for the U.S. government. So it's just one dude that the government can deny. He joins the International Legion and kind of has to scrape together a team from the handful of people that the Ukrainians can spare. So, But right. that does draw heavily from, from real life with the Chinese having been uh, so active in stealing uh, very sensitive information. You wouldn't think you're your health insurance could actually foil an operation, but it can. It's just another link in the chain. And the Chinese have been everywhere in our systems, which is terrible. Yeah, it's so intertwined. It's like, okay, you got this lone wolf guy doing this mission where he has to disavow any knowledge. That's a conceit. Why? I guess you don't have to spend so or a thriller writer needn't spend so much time as to why the reader just wants it to happen. But the why is just as interesting as the fact that you have the this uh, lone operator necessarily operating alone. Stuff like that, uh, I think it's instructive to the reader. It certainly serves your purpose to flesh out the believability of the motivations and the plot points. But I also think, and here's where we're going to get to it, it ties together. If your reader is generally of a certain mindset or a certain political stripe, and I'm sure, I mean, you have so many readers, they're all over the place. But it's little details like this that make for a coherent worldview that I was really impressed with. And I think being inside a book like this could actually change minds. So what I wanted to do with this book, I always tell people I would, and I've Gosh, I remember, I wish I could remember the, 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 oh, it's an old, there's an old New York disco artist that had this interesting thing about moving out of the city. Uh, I, I always say that I would never open a delicatessen and hang a sign on the front that said, no blacks, no Jews, no gays. I want all people in my deli. I want them all to eat my food. I cook for everybody. So with my books, I don't want to push my political opinion on you or anything like that. What I'm trying to do is give you a great, like I said, white knuckle thrill ride. I want you to enjoy this book. And if you close the book a little bit smarter, because maybe you Googled a thing or two, or you have some questions, for me, that's the icing on the cake. That's the value add that you get with a Brad Thor thriller. I don't care what you take from it other than I learned something. Awesome. Awesome. This is not propaganda. This is a classic Brad Thor thriller. But here's the context and what my listeners should know. So you go on the blaze a lot. uh, You identify as a conservative. You, I don't know, this might be slightly exaggerated, but you were considering a run for president because Donald Trump uh, upset you so much. Is that true? Am I getting that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he had jettisoned conservative values. I left the Republican Party in 2018 and have been, for the last five years, an independent. 
Right. So you're the, you're a national security conservative. Um, your books probably reflect that. And I don't know if you know the exact demographics. With so many readers, you, you have readers of every stripe, but you probably have a lot of conservative Republicans. And as we know, as the book talks about, something like 40% of the Republican Party is quite skeptical of the war of Ukraine. Right. This thing, for them, more than just about everything the New York Times or the Wall Street, well, the New York Times or the Washington Post can write, it lives in their world. It meets them where it is, and it explains the stakes. It talks about how the Russians are so much like the Nazis. It, I think, appeals to the idea of we can't let um, appeasement take hold. And it even invents, and you tell me if this is just a coincidence, but a powerful, main-based, anti-interventionist who tries to manipulate politics, uh, the, the the Republican Party of the United States. That's well, a character in so your book. So I never call it the Republican Party. I do believe politics are mm-hmm. downstream of culture. Uh, and I also think that, listen, in 2014, when Putin invaded eastern Ukraine, we had done that agreement. It's called the Budapest Memorandum from the 1990s about you give up the nukes, we'll make sure your sovereign territory remains intact. That was a promise we made that country. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent. It is important for America to honor its promises. And by the way, it blows my mind that there are people that are so pro-Putin in this country. I mean, it is absolutely mind-blowing for me. And I think they're just anti-anti-Putin. So they just want to be anti the people that are anti-Putin to a large degree right. because, you know, they talk about Ukraine being corrupt. Yeah, I'm from Chicago, but I don't want the Canadians to come down and invade Chicago and take Chicago <laughs> as corrupt as it is. And by the way, Ukraine has corruption because it's a hangover from the Soviet days. And by the way, you know who's more corrupt by orders of magnitude, more corrupt than Ukraine? Russia. Of course. Oh, my God. If we're just going to score this on corruption. Yeah. So, uh, you know, listen, I, t- I had different points of view, like that guy who is the anti-interventionist from Maine. I have a handful of uh, there's a there's an ex-senator who's just out to feather his own nest to get the, it's like kind of Val Kilmer in the saint. Once I get to 10 million dollars, I can retire kind of a thing. So I wanted to, I, I knew there were going to be people in my audience. I have a very, very broad audience. My first two pieces of fan mail ever. My first big ones. One was from Bert Lance from the Carter administration. He was a cabinet member, the uh, director of the OMB. The other was from Newt Gingrich. And they both complimented me for capturing Washington insider politics like nobody had ever read before. And all I did was take man's worst nature and set it on the Potomac. I, I was no, I didn't have any extra special insight. I just figured I'd create the most craven people I could in Congress. And they both loved it. Yes. So the last question is, you never wrote about bin Laden, but here you write about Putin, but he has a different name, but he's clearly a Putin stand-in. What's behind that choice? Well, you know, the minute you give somebody a real name in one of the books, you're tied to what they do in real life. So if it's a real person, what they do. So if he ends up room temperature, if Wagner had marched on, uh, you know, the Kremlin and had taken him out or somebody close to him, which, you know, every march rolls around. And I pray for the Ides of March that somebody's going to put a knife or a bunch of knives in Putin. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. Okay, so that that should that that should allay the question that, oh, he's afraid of offending Putin is why I didn't put the name. No, he can can kiss my ass. Yeah, Yeah, he can kiss my ass. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I talk about that the biggest killer of, uh, of people who are against the president of Russia, the, the biggest cause of death, leading cause of death is, it, death is gravity. Uh, you know, don't get near open windows or rooftops. Well, does it help you process the horrors of the world, the fact that you have a way to address them fictionally, or you may be able to turn them into something useful? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good way of phrasing it. This this book was easily the most intense thriller I've ever written, and the research for it was the most difficult because I had to read through all of the different war crimes that were currently happening in Ukraine. I went back and read the stuff. I mean, that the the that particular Nazi SS brigade had done when they they rolled through Warsaw. So I got to see the absolute uh, just that the worst uh, evils that could be perpetuated against particularly civilians uh, in the theater of war. So that was, that was tough. So yeah, I do see these things in real life and it's, it's great for me. It's great grist for the mill as a thriller writer, but I'm also a human being. And so you read about these things and just the pain, uh, you know, I, I want the war to end quickly for everybody, not just the Ukrainians, but you know, there's Russian wives and children and mothers and grandmothers that are crying because their men were conscripted, were forced into battle and put into this meat grinder and they're never coming home. There are children who no longer have fathers on the Russian side because Putin's an asshole. You know what I mean? So I'm sorry if we just blew the, the rating for this, no, this particular cool. episode. But yeah, so I, I am constantly stunned. And my job is to think of the worst possible thing because I'm always you know, working these things through in my novels. And I'm constantly surprised, particularly with the war in Ukraine, that like almost every week there's something that trumps even the worst thing I can come up with. It's, it's amazing. Brad Thor is the author of 23 thrillers. His latest is Deadfall. Brad, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, and hey, if you want to listen to more of the Brad Thor interview, and while I was doing it, I said to myself, I want to hear more, so I asked more questions, and Thor gave more answers. That is available to everyone who goes to subscribe.mikepesca.com and subscribes to the Pesca Plus option, or if you just don't want to hear all the ads, including ads like this one, you could subscribe to the ad-free version, become a Pesca Plus subscriber, support this enterprise. And now the spiel. Iran-U.S. advanced deal to swap prisoners free oil fund is the headline. The development marks a rare bright spot in U.S.-Iranian relations, which have been marked by deep distrust and a failure to revive a nuclear agreement. Free oil funds, well... Freedom of prisoners isn't free, and also free oil funds aren't free. This is an exchange for the release of $6 billion from South Korea for Iran that had been frozen due to sanctions. The U.S. says the money must be used for humanitarian purposes, but it's unclear how they will guarantee that. Yeah, a cool $6 billion will be going to the Iranians, some would argue, the Iranians among them, that it was their $6 billion to begin with. A $6 billion payment can ease those often tense diplomatic relations along. The U.S. will secure the formal release or release the formerly secured five prisoners, which is quite a ransom. Now, to be fair, it did take years and years to free the five, so the $6 billion today, that had been worth $7 billion at the beginning of Biden's term. So, Factor in inflation looks like a great deal for the administration. Bargain, really. The process of actually bringing the detainees back to the United States, according to the New York Times, quote, the three named prisoners and one other person were transferred on Thursday from Evan Prison, one of the most notorious detention centers in Iran, to a hotel in Tehran, one of the most notorious hotels, according to TripAdvisor, where they will be held for several weeks until they are allowed to board an airplane. The TripAdvisor part was 
uh, a little writer's embellishment on my part. Two of the detainees are unnamed. So that Times uh, selection listed four detainees. There are going to be 10. We don't know who two are, but of the three we know, two have been held since 2018. And then there's Siamak Namazi, who has been behind bars for nearly eight years. Washington Post said Namazi was sentenced to 10 years in prison on charges of, quote, collaboration with a hostile foreign government, a claim that the United Nations, human rights organizations in the United States have said is baseless. He was arrested in 2015 while he was on a business trip to Iran. The United States has said that in imprisoning Namazi and other U.S. nationals, Iran has used hostages to gain leverage in international negotiations. And I think now we could say it's worked. It's totally worked. There are 6 billion arguments that it has worked. 7 billion in 2021 arguments. And whenever someone is detained and the autocratic regime alleges spying, this is how it always plays out in denials from all quarters. No, 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 it wasn't spying. Spying would have been one set of circumstances, but this is just an innocent businessman or tourist unfairly imprisoned by a nefarious regime. And that makes it seem like a greater injustice. Indeed, it is a greater injustice. But I think about it almost in the opposite way. I want the US to get its spies back. If you are spying for this country, I want this country to go the extra mile to get you back, as opposed to just some poor schnook who gets picked up by the agents of the state or someone who is foolish enough to enter a hostile foreign power and insult their leaders or desecrate a statue or maybe try to sneak in some hashish or do some other misdeed, which does not deserve such a severe level of detention, but also marks you as distinct from the intelligence community. So I say get the spies, meaning bring them back, get them first, incentivize future spies who go into these bad places where we need intelligence and tell them, don't worry spies, if you're caught, we will have your back and we will have you back. We'll get the UN to say the question of spying is totally off the table. We'll get human rights organizations to agree with them. Plus, we have established your worth as being a little over a billion dollars. You know, not the kind of billion that we'd have to move around on our books to find, but if a billion dollars is being withheld in a bank account marked sanction slash rainy day detainee fund, you're probably in luck after eight years of probably a horrible existence in a foreign prison. Anyway, congrats to the detained Iranian Americans. I hope you come back soon. And when you do, I trust your reaction will be a thankfulness to the Biden administration, but also sticker shock at how much milk costs. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson, Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening.